this is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. Now let's get into it. Matthew. Yes. I am fascinated by this topic that we're going to be discussing today. Yeah. Because I spent like the last, I don't know, 13 years of my life looking at it. <laughs> have you heard of Liberia? I have only just recently heard of Liberia. What have you heard? So what I have heard of Liberia is that it was a country that was more or less created as a space for black enslaved people who wanted to go back to Africa, who had been enslaved in America, to go back to Africa. Created by whom? By Americans. Ah, okay. Am I on the right path? Interesting, yeah. Where did America get that idea from? Well, I didn't learn it in high school, that's for sure. <laughs> well... I, you know, obviously fascinated with all of these kinds of things. I came to this topic um, in grad school and would take a fascinating turn when I discovered this story that not only African-Americans went, but people from the Caribbean. Can you imagine that? Mm. My whole world yeah. just came together in the most delicious kind of way. Absolutely. Right? All the black people. <laughs> all the black people in one place. I'm like, ah! You know, on December 5th, 1864, Barbadians who were interested in going to Liberia wrote to the American Colonization Society, that organization that you just spoke about who created <laughs> Liberia, right? And they wrote to the American Colonization Society seeking assistance to go to Liberia. Now, since the American Colonization Society had been founded in around 1816, 1817, it had waded through piles of such requests from black people, right? But almost exclusively from African Americans. Hardly any of those kinds of requests were from black people outside of the United States. And of course, the ACS, who was kind of a, a fledgling organization at the time, published in its report, um, its propaganda magazine, uh, the African Repository, under this very scandalous headline, Appeal in Aid of Emigration from Barbados to Liberia. And they boasted how the spirit of emigration to Liberia was reported to exist in St. Kitts, in Demerara, in St. Thomas, and other islands in the West Indies. In Barbados, um, you had uh, several different companies of individuals who were interested in going to Liberia, and it was one of them who had written to the American Colonization Society invoking aid on behalf of those people. One of those movements was the Fatherland Union Barbados Immigration um, Society for Liberia. Now, of course, the Barbadians' letter um, to of interest in Liberia reflected their desires for a better future, right? As an immigrant, they're quintessential immigrant. Like people had been doing that for a very long time. But more interestingly, it was fueled by post-slavery frustrations, but also black nationalist interests. Um, slavery in Barbados had been abolished by the British in 1833, right? Slavery would be abolished in America in 1863, so 30 years prior. And as I said earlier, they're right into the ACS in 1864. 
So why 30 years after slavery is abolished are they interested in leaving Barbados, Sunshine Island? It's fueled by these post-slavery frustrations and black nationalist interests. After all, who called the Barbadians when they were making these kinds of, you know, the abolitionist act? We're like, oh, what do you guys think? What do you want? What would you like after slavery? Would you like to sit down under a coconut tree and plan for your children? Would you like this parcel of land? Can I get you some tea and honey? Yes. Can, would you like to come and work for me now? I'm tired. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> asked them that. In the letter that the Barbadian had sent to the American Colonization Society, it provides us a look at, at this desire that the Barbadians had. And they explained that were free passages provided, several hundreds of worthy and industrious Barbadians would gladly and immediately see the attractive shores of the African Republic. And he outlined that they were desirous of immigrating for two reasons. And this is what they said, right? This is very important. This is what my whole research was about. It said, one being the improvement of their condition by diligent labor, mm. right? And two was the noble desire of assisting to elevate their, uh, their fatherland or building up a nationality without which they consider their race can never attain their proper position in the family of nations. Mm. Wow. They want to build up themselves by diligent labor, but they also want to build up a nation because they want the black race to have respectability. Right. And if they don't have a nation, how can they achieve that? So nationhood, nation building, from their perspective, was very important. Right. And so if you're not a part of the nation building project, whether you're in America or you're in Barbados... How can that be then extended to your race? If you're excluded, if you're you know pushed out of voting, if you're excluded from land, if you're excluded from self-actualizing, how can you then be a part of that? How can you uh, gain the respectability, the dignity that you as a human being need? So here are Barbadians after slavery envisioning turning around their post-emancipation disappointments, right? By taking control of their labor and um, connecting their labor and its rewards to building a black nation to gain the race respectability. And they're drawing not just for themselves, but the whole entire black race and, you know, promoting this kind of mutually constituted black freedom that would advance themselves, the nation and the black race in general. This Barbadian interest in post-slavery migration might have been unremarkable. <laughs> Why? Who cares about this story? It might have been unremarkable had it been to a place within the Circum-Caribbean region or elsewhere in the Atlantic world, right? right? Would I be right about this if they had gone to Florida? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, Taking so, over Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii, you know? That they chose, um, they did not choose those kinds of well-beaten roads. And Barbadians migrated everywhere, right? Um, Panama, Canal, mm -hmm. everywhere in the Caribbean. But the question that really got me going, Matt, was why would colonial Barbadians living in the British Empire be interested in migrating to Liberia, an American colony turned independent Black Republic, when the British had created Sierra Leone, a British colony that was just next door. Right. Like literally bordering Liberia. Right. Why don't they want to go there? That was my question. And so that was what drove my research to look into these 346 Barbadians and their decision to migrate to Liberia 
And what socio-cultural uh, and political outcomes drove their decision to leave? And then what was the effect once they settled, right? But more importantly, what pressure did it exert on the meaning of blackness? They're going to build this black republic. Well, who is going to be in this black republic? What, who, how do we understand what is meant by black? Who gets to determine what is meant by black? Right? Who gets to create that meaning? So uh, this is the book I kind of came up with. I had gone to Vanderbilt University back in 2007, intended to very much write um, about the intersection of Jamaican music and politics. However, acting upon advice to change my research focus, my advisor was like, um, I'm an expert in colonization and abolition, find something in this area. <laughs> and so I was using my library time and I'm like, huh, um, um, let me, you know, I was, in, I was reading a lot about Haiti and I was like, let me look to Liberia, see how these black republics are. You know, how did the U.S. address Liberia diplomatically during mm -hmm. that period after slavery? You know, because I knew that they, you know, like uh, Haiti had had some trouble and whatnot. And while I was doing that, I discovered this white colonizationist. His name was Gerald Ralston, mm -hmm. right? So he is one of those people who was in the American Colonization Society. And he had served as Liberia's Consul General in the mid-19th century. I had started writing uh, uh, about Ralston and his efforts to negotiate a trade and diplomacy on behalf of the imperial black nation, right? Like black people who don't have their own standing in the world. So, you know, can the subaltern speak? No, the white person have to speak <laughs> for them, right? And so Ralston, who very much is altruistic and philan uh, uh, philanthropic, little secret here, the American Colonization Society was also made up of slaveholders mm -hmm. who wanted to get rid of black people from America because having free black people them. around riding on rims and having Yeezys <laughs> <laughs> does not keep slave properties safe, you know, let's get rid of them. So you are finding all these states passing all these laws. If you become free, you have to leave the states within six months. Mm -hmm. So what other options did many of these enslaved people have but to go to Liberia? So many of them took that on, um, right? But so here is Ralston, and um, he's negotiating Liberia's diplomacy. And I found this letter that he's writing to this group of Barbadians who had expressed an interest in immigrating to Liberia. I was like, obviously, I know about Sierra Leone. So I'm like, why would Barbadians be writing to Gerard Ralston? Mm. And so that's what saved me of, um, from writing about Gerard Ralston, <laughs> writing an autobiography of Gerard Ralston. So I found myself going down the rabbit hole. You know, right. my students often making fun of me. I'm one of those people with like 20 tabs open. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's not 20. They counted one time. It was like 107. But I found myself going down this rabbit hole uh, uh, you know, asking these questions. Why are British colonial Barbadians interested in migrating to Liberia? And what, um, why would they go there? And why would others go elsewhere? And what I uncovered brought the story together of West Indians, African-Americans, um, African, uh, Africans of different ethnic groups. Liberians have, you know, over, um, you know, 14 different ethnic um, groups living there. And then a category of Africans called African recaptives, right, or liberated Africans who were saved from slave ships by British and American squadrons and put in Liberia, 
right? So here are all these black people of various persuasions who arrive in Liberia under various conditions of unfreedom attempting to make a nation. And so that's what fascinated me, Matthew, right? And so um, it struck me that while the Barbadian story resembled that of other 19th century migrants, theirs um, share neither um, the common set of tropes nor the sense of narrative inevitability. And so um, my questions about Liberian diplomacy took a backseat. And then this larger question about the cosmopolitanism, right, the Afropolitanism that was happening in Liberia emerged. And so that's kind of what I jumped into. And, you know, what also led me um, and fueled this project was to see what happens happened once they got there, right? Because we, you know, as a migrant myself um, to the United States, I often get this question about, and you hear it a lot now about the conflicts uh, between Africans and African-Americans and Caribbean people and, and African-Americans and whatnot. So obviously that's in the back of my mind. I'm trying to make friends. I'm in the International <laughs> Students Association with all these Africans. I played soccer with them. I'm trying to eat all the jollof. I'm trying to have all the things, okay? Man, I'm like, I'm like you know, I'm from Jamaica. I'm took Marcus Garvey's word seriously, okay? <laughs> and so all of these issues are very important to me. So having read Marcus Garvey and looking at this situation, I'm like, what did these Barbadians do? What did these African-Americans do once they got there? And so I'm like, yay, leave Babylon. <laughs> They're leaving Babylon, marching out of Babylon, right? Like the Israelites. And they're, they've crossed the Red Sea, the mm -hmm. Atlantic, into paradise it's great we love it here it's let's all hug. what could go wrong what could go wrong <laughs> you know and so the other thing that we've talked through this podcast is the ways in which black people and certainly black immigrants as well you know navigate these different structures in which they found themselves right they're walking this tightrope that often reveal their conflicting human tendencies Right. Um, so, you you know, we might have seen African-Americans who had black nationalist dreams of creating this utopia. Right. Um, often centered around African-American Republican ideals of Christianity. Um, African-Americans have these um, Afro-Barbadians also had these Pan-African tendencies that had pro-royalist <laughs> mm -hmm. tendencies sometimes. And these human contradictions um, became often clearer as black immigrants slipped into sometimes sanctimonious and oppressive positions that often took on the posture of white supremacy that they sought to escape. You know, when I was just beginning this project and I couldn't really articulate the theories quite well, I used to be like, have you ever played the game Tag Your It? Mm -hmm. And how I thought about it was like, you are used to being the oppressed one. What do you do when you get a chance to oppress somebody else? Mm. What happens with that? Have you ever been bullied? Sure, yeah. And then when once you have power and you see somebody else who is, who was, who is now in that weaker position that you used to be in, what decision do you make? And so today, I am so pleased that on the Undisciplined Podcast, we have Lorenzo Witherspoon, with his maternal grandfather, George Stanfield Bess, hailing from Trinidad, and his maternal grandmother, John Prince Port, hailing from Barbados, all Ports and Bess were 
inarguable of Caribbean origin. So Mr. Witherspoon is, you know, he's deep into the, the Caribbean. He's into the soca and the reggae at the moment. He is fully claiming the heritage, okay? He served Liberia at the highest level of diplomacy in the foreign service. In South Africa, he was one of the first ambassadors to present letters of credence to the then Nelson Mandela. Um, and he served uh, concurrently as the doyen of the group of ambassadors of West Africa, the ECOWAS state. He has worked in procurement and supply chain in public, private sectors, including three UN agencies, residing in more than 11 countries on four continents. And prior to that, uh, Mr. Witherspoon served as deputy ambassador to the Demo Democratic Republic of Congo and the Republic of Congo. This is an international renaissance man, okay? <laughs> this is the international renaissance man. He's been an advisor at the World Health uh, Organization. He will retire, unfortunately, in February 22nd, but it's a retirement that is well-deserved given the storied career. And so we're happy that he has made time to come to speak with us today on the Undisciplined Podcast. Ambassador, how are you? I'm fine, Kerry. I'm fine. Gosh, I've enjoyed thoroughly this uh, pitch that you've made, uh, this story that you've told. Uh, I, I, I don't think I've heard a better story uh, bringing us <laughs> from the early beginnings to where we are right now. Well, I want to begin by asking you, how did you encounter this story about your four beers? Do you remember the first time you ever, like, did you think you were Liberian and then somebody told you that you were an island boy? Well, no, in fact, uh, people always told me that I was an island boy, not a Liberian. That's <laughs> uh, because growing up in Crozoville, that's all they talked about there. And everywhere you looked in Crozoville, you saw, for want of a better word, word relics of, uh, of uh, West Indies. Those days they say we came from West Indies. And then mm -hmm. we broke it down, went down deeper to say Barbados. But it was always West Indies. And my grandmother would say, no, no, we are West Indians, you know. And so we became Liberian when, we, when our, my great-great-grandfather went there. Uh, that's when he became Liberian. Of course, he was granted citizenship, as you mentioned earlier, and 25 acres of land. And as a consequence of him becoming Liberian, uh, we became Liberian, all his offsprings and their offsprings and their offsprings. So I'm the fifth generation. But we used to sit down on the stairs and as a pity, our, our, our homestead was uh, demolished during the wars, several different wars. But we used to sit and there were many of us. Uncle Albert had 12 children. My grandmother had eight children. And uh, we would sit on the stairs in the evening. And all we talked about was the West Indies. From what they had been told by their parents and their parents, you know. And they were telling us, like, as though they were passing it on to us, you know, uh, that one of my uncles is named after one of a cousin that came from, he was a seaman. And somehow he made the effort when he knew that there were ports in Liberia. He came once, and I can't remember how long ago it was, but it must have been, I must have been about eight or the first time he came. And every year he would come and he would bring chocolates and candy for us. And his name was Keith Neville Best. And my grandmother <laughs> named one of her sons after him, Keith Neville Best. You know, so, uh, I mean, that, that's all we knew growing up. 
So the, the whole idea of being West Indian suffused the whole neighborhood. It was just a part of tradition, part of living. And I understood that at that time, settlements were by where people were from. So the Barbadians settled in Crowsville, different like people from South Carolina settled in one place, Virginia, Maryland, you know, different parts. So the, the settlement took on the traditions of that space where the people were coming from. Precisely. And all along, all the settlements were located along the St. Paul River. So all along the St. Paul River, Caldwell, White Plains, Crozerville, Bensonville, all of them. And it's like we were right in the middle. Uh, well, right, right, not right in the middle, but Crozerville was uh, surrounded uh, on one side by Bensonville, which later became Ben Tall. President Tall named it after him. And after Crozerville was White Plains. But mm -hmm. White Plains and Bensonville, the people that came from the States. It was only in Crozerville that everybody in Crozerville were people that came from Barbados, <laughs> you know? And they were, they were the same, if you, you, you know, you've seen the manifest, the Weeks, the Padmos, we, we all lived like one big family. We were all cousins and they were uncles, you know? They, it was like a big family, a, a big Bajan family that settled in Crozerville. And uh, we've always known each other, known of each other, whether we're related by blood or just by familiar uh, 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 circumstances, we were all living together as one big family. And you know so, what happened, what they brought with them, people say uh, from Barbados, is that uh, we also had a lot of uh, intermarriages and, uh, you know, things going on. So some of that became even more more uh, uh, more entrenched through marriage. The relationships were, became closer as a consequence of marriage. Uh, but also just because our, for example, my grand uncle, Albert Port, he worked very closely with J.I.A. Weeks, and they were both writers. They did the Crozerville Observer. Right. And because of that, the two families were extremely close. And so we like cousins. You know, all of us, we know it, the whole family, even down to the younger children. Of course, the ones that were born during the war and after, they probably don't know each other. But before the war, before 1980, when the first coup happened, we all knew each other and we're all like siblings. So did you feel special or different in the grand context of Liberia or the surrounding settlements that, you know, of people who came from other states or other places? Like, how how do you think the, the Crozeville boys and girls and Crozeville people, uh, how did you all feel relative to the other settlements? One of the first things I learned from my 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 forebears uh, was an element of humility. We didn't feel special. We knew we were different, but we didn't feel special. We were different in that our circumstances was, were different. Our people decided on their own, they wanted to come to Liberia, of course, uh, uh, taking advantage of the invitation, but they decided they wanted to come to Liberia. Liberia offered them an opportunity to build, to grow, to become independent, to become uh, 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 respectful, and to uh, embrace nationhood and nation building. And that's what they wanted. And that's what they carved out for themselves. You know, so they all came in. They were all on of the 364. They were all either well-skilled or well-educated people, you know. Uh, so my John Prince Port, I found places where on the manifesto say he was a farmer. I found places at uh, baptismal records that say he was a boiler. But I guess those days, everybody did everything, right? <laughs> Multi-talented. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they, the slave owners taught you or they, uh, your bosses taught you what they wanted you to do. 
you didn't have to go to school to learn how to become a boiler. You know, they say, we'll show you. And they, they, they picked up those skills. So, yes, we never felt uh, special. No, we never felt, we knew we were different, but we didn't go out there also flaunting our difference, you know, because the fact that others knew we were different was sufficient. And we didn't, because of that commonality between the American Liberians and us, the Afro-Barbadians, uh, Liberian Barbadians, we all saw that, well, we, we're the same because we're all more or less aliens here. We're, Im- we're all immigrants, you know? Right. So we, we, we work very closely together. In fact, that's why up until today, the natives in Liberia refer to us that came as Conga people, people who were, you know, brought back here by these American people, you know, and who they say try to come and uh, came to try to uh, to rule them. So what was a typical day like in Crozerville growing up? Well, it depends on the time of the year it was. If it was school holidays, then you wake up in the morning, you have some tea. Before the crack of dawn, you're going into the farm to work, to uh, uh, plant some cassava, uh, some radishes, uh, some uh, 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 sugar cane, uh, go to the rum distillery because my all you know my family they had their own rum called Port and Sons PNS. All the boys, the girls stayed around the house. They cooked, they baked, they did, they did all the things that girls did in the house. But the older boys went out to the farm. Now, if it was school time when school was in session, of course, you woke up early in the morning and we went to the parish school, Crozaville Parish School, which was part of the Episcopal Church. Uh, it was about well, about a 15 minute walk from the house. And uh, you stayed in school all day, and you came home, you ate something, and then uh, we had a school in the house. Uncle Abba started teaching us again, you know, before we do our homework. So education was was uh, uh, number one in the family, of course, next to respect and all of that. So growing up in Crozaville, and thankfully, there wasn't really much to do except for go to church and go to school. You know, there were not many activities, uh, you know, going on. On the big, big uh, farm days, we would go to take the produce down to the farm for the people, the uh, people that come from Monrovia to buy produce and food and whatever else that we, we make and take it, uh, take it back down to Monrovia. But uh, we so we, we, we were extremely domesticated. And that's why, mm-hmm. you know, all the family, all of our families, everybody cooks well, everybody is diligent, dutiful, everybody's respectful. You know, sometimes I wake up and I I, I see myself sleeping in, in, in the house on Port Hill, you know, and just <laughs> having those memories uh, of Snapple Hill. So it it seems all these theories out there about the war, right? And um, certainly you know of Helene Cooper, who has written um, a very wonderful book, uh, one of the best books I always recommend it to people. It's called The House on Sugar Beach, the story in search of a lost African childhood. And she details, much like you, her um, ancestry and her understanding of the power dynamics at work in Liberia and uh, to kind of explain her relationship to Liberia and what happens with the war once that war comes to Liberia. 
And um, one part of it that she she talks about is who could fall asleep away way out in the bush like that. I went to bed at night wishing we were back at our old house in Congo town. Liberia is nowhere near the Congo River, but the term Congo is endemic. We're called the Congo people. My family and the rest of the descendants of the free American slaves who founded Liberia in 1822. It is a somewhat derogatory term invented by the native Liberians back in the early 19th century after Britain abolished, slave, uh, after Britain abolished the slave trade on the high seas. British patrols seized slave ships leaving the West African coast for America and returned those captured to Liberia and Sierra Leone, whether they came from there or not. And since many of the slave ships entered the Atlantic from the mouth of the massive Congo River, the native Liberians, many of whom happily engaged in the slave trade and didn't like this new business of freeing the slaves and dumping them in Liberia, called the newcomers Congo people. Because the newly freed captives were released in Liberia at the same time that the freed blacks arrived in Liberia from America, all newcomers became known as Congo people. Liberia is full of Congo this and Congo that. Congo town, where our old house was, is the suburb of Monrovia. It was filled with Congo people like us. We got the native Liberians back by calling them country people, far more derogatory in our eyes. We even have, I don't know if she mentioned that, but we have a rice that's locally grown. Right. And I don't know how to do it, but somehow you find traces of little pebbles of sand or rocks in it. You know what the name of the rice is? Country rice. Because this is a grain coast, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, the plantation owners in, in, in the United States directly recruited Africans from that area, like, for South Carolina and the Carolinas, where there were a lot of rice grown because of Africans' expertise in growing rice, right? So places like even Arkansas now that grows a lot of rice, all these big companies set up here to grow rice. Um, this is what Arkansas is known for now, right? Owes a lot to these Africans who came from that Liberia, Sierra Leone area who had expertise in growing rice. But uh, Helen Cooper was, you know, attributing much to that dynamics uh, or that back and forth. And of course, she highlighted that, you know, her family came on the first, the first ship to have landed in Liberia in 1822. And she's descended from the Coopers, right? Her name is Helene Cooper. And so the Coopers came on that first ship and pretty much like the Americans who claimed to have landed on Plymouth Rock, Landing at Providence Island um, on that first ship gives you a kind of stake in the nation that um, maybe not even the Barbadians could access, right? Well, you know, I think I think the, the Barbadians were uh, they were humble, but I think they were proud people. For them, I think when they arrived in Cruiserville, you know, first of all, they were excited about the fact that my God, suddenly we have all this place just for ourselves. They started clearing the land right away and started planting. Instead, yeah. you know, that's what they've always wanted. They, in fact, they, they didn't even, they had never dreamed that as black people, you could actually own land. When you come from an island that's 166 square miles, when you jump around on one foot in a circle for your total land holdings, 25 acres is a monstrosity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I think they, they were so so excited uh, uh, of the about the opportunity and about uh, the 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 well not the prospect, but uh, having to carve out a whole new life for themselves. It's like you know what? Okay, we know the past. We know we're not going to repeat it. So let's just look forward. You know, right. and we have this God-given opportunity here. You know, with this generosity of uh, land and citizenship. I mean, before long, they were exporting coffee, cocoa. Some of the best Arabica cocoa came from Liberia. It was being right. shipped and sugar. Yes. Yeah. But in Monrovia, the American Liberians, they were both, they, most of them went into business and stuff like that. You know, but uh, as for us, we were basically farmers. farmers. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. They staked a lot on the Barbadians and the, that sense. And because not only in Liberia were Barbadians known to be productive throughout the Caribbean, too. And a lot of that is attributed to how harsh slavery was in Barbados and that it was from Barbados that Britain built its empire. Right. So uh, Barbados earned that reputation for having industrious people. So certainly once the Barbadian migrants got to Liberia, um, you know, the American colonization society prominently placed, you know, their skills on the ship manifest to show how industrious the migrants are, all the, you know, the different skill sets that they had. And the nation really did stake its way forward on the on the Barbadians. So you talked about a lot about how the war changed Crozeville, the landscape, scattering probably a lot of families going to the U.S. and elsewhere in Africa and Europe. I imagine that prompted a lot of people to start looking into history and probably starting to move to collect that history. How did that process come about for your family? Well, you know, uh, I can't remember the early origins, but uh, I would think it's uh, pretty much uh, the way I, I learned about it. Kids were growing up uh, and they grew up in uh, mostly in South Africa, but uh, before then in, uh, in, in Djibouti when we worked there, uh, was just telling them these stories, you know, about my grandfather, my grandmother, they would ask, want to know these things and ask questions, you know, and uh, would talk about it. And uh, of course, back then, for me, I knew the history and that was enough, knowing where my forebears came from. I, I, I think they were very careful in pointedly referring to it of themselves as being West Indians coming from the West Indies, not from Barbados or from Trinidad. Although they would tell you, yes, but my, my, my great great grandfather came from Barbados, according to the, uh, his story. And uh, my grandfather, according to his story, came from Trinidad and Tobago. You know, but in short, they just say that they are West Indians. So we kept telling them the story. But then my daughter, uh, she went to school, uh, so she knew the story. And she went to uh, university at, uh, in, in Montreal. And uh, not long after getting there, made some friends, of course. And uh, one day, one of her friends said, well, let's come, let's go to the, uh, the Caribbean club meeting. And she says, but I'm not Caribbean. And she said, Lois, <laughs> come on, what do you mean you're not Caribbean? Have you taken a look at yourself? Have you listened to yourself talk? Of course you are Caribbean. And she said, oh, well, yeah, you know, my dad told me, you know, that his grandmother and his great-great-grandfather came from uh, Barbados and Trinidad, you know, but he said, let's come, let's go. And she went in and became a member of the club and she joined it. And it was while, while there that she says, Daddy, we have to do this thing. We have to do this research. 
let's find out more about Nassib but Lois. When the coup happened, and we didn't talk about that, but all of Uncle Abbott's records in Crozaville, and he had a library, all those records were looted. All the National Archives were looted. You know, I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing. I think Matt has been able to excavate, do some excavation in Crozoville and other places, Providence Island and stuff, so he's managed to recover some stuff. But uh, in terms of uh, actual physical records, you know, everything was lost. We can't even find a picture of our great-great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, John Prince Port. Nobody has a picture of him. You know, we have a picture of George Best because he was most recent. And of course, uh, while my grandmother was still alive, I think we should give each of us photos. And so... Uh, we had them all over the world outside of Liberia, but so there are no there are no records or nothing. So it's been a very difficult and painful period, you know, and that's why we said we have to go through the uh, uh, process, difficult as we know it will be, and challenging of uh, finding uh, more about our origins. And so Lois began it, and she kept pushing me, and she you know, took the lead with it. And uh, I enlisted uh, Rodney, uh, who's like a brother, but he's a cousin. Uh, we grew up together. And so we got we got this going. Then I ran into you and I ran into Matt and I met some other people and I started hearing other people's stories, you know, and it just got so exciting. I mean, I would sit here in my study and sometimes five o'clock in the morning, you know, I'm just excited and just going at it, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God. And it was just so exciting. And then until we went to Barbados, and uh, found out that we hit a brick wall because all those records were there in journals that couldn't be opened because we 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 convinced that the records are there. Maybe some of those records are some that the British took out with them when they were leaving. At least there's a lot still there. They just are in such state that they can't be accessed. Tell me, what was that feeling like? Because I know... For me, the first time uh, I went to uh, study in Africa in 2011, I was so elated. You know, I was telling my family, I don't know what I should do to commemorate going to Africa. I should eat some dirt. I should become one with the continent. Maybe I should eat some grass. You know, I when I landed at Kotoka Airport, <laughs> I was just like, I cannot believe I am here. So I'm wondering for you, the experience of that reverse migration to the Caribbean, what what was that like? How did it feel? And what was your experience? First of all, when the plane landed, as soon as we came out of the plane, rather, I knew I was home because the place was as hot as Liberia. <laughs> <laughs> Walking from the plane to the terminal, and uh, of course, it was COVID time, so one had to be very careful. But the thoughts just kept going through my mind. Gosh, you know, it's been 150 years since my forebears left. Nobody in my family has ever succeeded in coming back here. I'm the first as the fifth generation, the oldest child in the fifth generation. I'm the first of all generations to ever come here, you know, so I felt I was carrying a huge burden. And then when we went up to Irish town, Matt Riley took me out there, which is where, according to the records we have so far, is where my great great grand uncle was last known to have lived and worked, uh, which was after 1833. 
and before coming to uh, to Liberia. And we walked through, of course, the, the place is, uh, is uh, it doesn't exist anymore because of, you know, what has happened over the years. A lot of, you know, uh, nature has taken its course. But we walked through the beach. We spent about an hour and a half there, Rodney, Matt, and I, going as high up as we could go. And looking at the old farm implements, they're still there. And the, the shuttle houses, they're still there. I just, I couldn't help myself. I just broke down because I could see my great, great grand uncle walking up and down that hill, maybe taking some of those implements, uh, putting some sugar cane in this thing to uh, get the, uh, the the juice out, to make cane juice. I mean, it just brought everything full circle, looking at the creeks and imagining them washing clothes there at the water at the creek, you know, mm-hmm. because of course that's the only place grew, and bathing. I, I could almost feel the, the tears they were crying, the suffering they were enduring, you know, during that period. And I said, no, this is this is just, you know, I, I have never, I think it's the first time I really came to understood, you know, what being enslaved meant as a slave, really working for someone, you know, uh, getting paid nothing, uh, 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 zero wages, you know. For me, that was the highlight of the trip, going to that place, Irish town, uh, and then going later on the, below cliff uh, in St. John. And that was in St. Thomas. That's where, uh, that's the last place we found. And that's where he's known to have met uh, uh, his wife, my great-great-grandmother, who was Elizabeth. Now, she, that era was the poor whites, you know, we believe right. She was a, an, an Irish red leg, you know, right. because in our family, we have a lot of people who are almost white. And we, we don't know what, what her origin may have been. We haven't found anything about her in the records. So uh, that's something that we hope there will be in those in those books. Because, again, in those journals, like the prime minister said, there are a lot of wills and stuff in there. And the slave owners' wills would be their slaves are part of their, their estate. So those names might be there or what have you, you know, but that's why we need to get those records preserved, deciphered and, and docu- uh, documented uh, and preserved, not only ourselves, but for, for posterity, for people, who, historians, people who want to know about where the people came from, what they went through, who they were. And then we went around, drove across around the entire island. You know, actually, we did it twice. And the landscape, everything is so much like Liberia. So much like I felt so much at home. In fact, we were mm. talking about looking into perhaps buying something there, just a small right. little place, you know, that we'll have go because I intend to be going back on a regular basis, you know, especially now that I'm retired. I will be retired soon, rather, to build a connection there, and going through the different areas, seeing all the different people. You are calling me. Oh, look for the Goodriches. Look for the Morris. <laughs> look for this. You know, I say, look, guys, this isn't as simple as you think, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants you to go take a picture by where their family house used to be. But since I went, the interest now in Barbados is so heightened. In fact, one of the things I'm trying to do, Karee, is to Great. plan a big migration back sometime next year. Good. Maybe second or third quarter, maybe more towards the third quarter. And that's a lot of people all over uh, the diaspora, Liberians and Ghanaians and Nigerians that want to go Great. back. It justified everything that we have been doing, going back yeah. there. And of course, having the opportunity to uh, be receiving audience by the prime minister and uh, uh, us talking about the things we talked about and 
planning to do some of the things we plan to do. Yeah, that's what's going to be my next question to you. Um, you already mentioned in terms of what's next of not only Liberians of Barbadian heritage, but um, Nigerians, Ghanaians. We know that in 2019 was the big year of return and uh, Ghana had a big celebration. I was so jealous. Everybody was over there in the shikis and kinti cloth and everything. I was like, Ah, man. Uh, so you were thinking about a similar thing for for Africans who have uh, ancestry um, to trace back to Barbados and so on to make that journey. And uh, you're saying that you've had these talks with Prime Minister Mia Motley. And just recently in November here, Barbados became a republic and big plans are underway. Could you talk about that a little bit? The, the Prime Minister liked the idea very much and she asked us to uh, offer our support and uh, I think what has happened is that they have even uh, taken that to another level and I'm not taking any credit for that but uh, one of the things they announced during the Republican uh, the transition to a Republicanism uh, in November was a uh, creation of the Heritage District which, mm -hmm. as you know, by uh, Daniel Ajay, the uh, eminent architect of Ghanaian, I don't know why they say, they said uh, British Ghanaian ancestry. It's not, it's not Ghanaian British, you know, he's British now, but he's Ghanaian. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> uh, uh, he's been contracted to do the, uh, the, the Heritage District. And uh, alongside that, we will be doing our, our work with, to help with uh, fundraising. So we're going to be involved in that, in uh, trying to uh, find the financing for it. I have pitched it to so many people and so many people. I get calls every day, people. So what are the plans? What are the months? When are we going? You know, and people that want to go. Good thing is when I met with the prime minister, she asked me, she says, you know what? It will be good. It will be good because the diaspora Bayesians, they know more about Barbados than Barbadians know about Africa. So <laughs> it will be good. And it's true. And it's sad, but it's true. In fact, that's one of the, I, I don't want to talk about the experience that I had when I was there, but I found that black Bajans didn't really have an interest in their African ancestry from talking to people largely. You know, I mean, when I say people, I don't, I mean, lay people. Uh, you found, I found a Jamaican brother there. Uh, he was a musician. He was saying, man, I want to get out of this country and go back where I came from. You know, so <laughs> those kind of people, you know, but that's that's, uh, you know, a uh, uh, needle in the haystack kind of situation. So there are many people out here. So she, she asked me, if you can arrange to bring Africans here with have a Bajan uh, 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 ancestry, the government will provide everything that they need to have a. Uh, we have ancestry tracing, of course. Now I, I don't know how much we can do of that because that this thing is just starting. But to make government will make available facilities for them to really, really get into the country and see around and organize activities and all that kind of stuff. We figure maybe about a week. Then she says, but that wouldn't be. We shouldn't stop there because I also want Bajans to go to Africa, so they can right. really see and they can really feel why they think the way they do and why they look the way they do, and why they act the way they do. Exactly. They have to know the history.
Well, Ambassador, this has been certainly fascinating. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for coming to the Undisciplined Podcast. And we are so much better for what you've contributed to us today. We've grown leaps and bounds, and we so appreciate your wise words. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Undisciplined is hosted by me, Karee Banton. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening.